turn in our Bibles today to 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. My plan is to start preaching through the book of Job in January, and uh, today we'll, we'll uh, talk about thanks and thanksgiving, and then over the next four weeks I'm going to do an Advent series in the book of Haggai, um, and then we'll start Job in January. So that's that's the plan. So let's pray as we go to God's word. First Timothy four one through five. As you turn there, we'll pray. Uh, Father of lights, every good and perfect gift is from you, and you have redeemed for yourself a people. You have brought us up out of slavery to sin and death uh, by the blood of the Lamb. You know what we need daily, even before we ask. You supply all of our needs. And so far, even beyond mere needs, you grant many of our desires. Our cups overflow with blessing upon blessing. And therefore, our good God, we set our hopes on you, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Amen. We'll stand once more for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, if we uh, gobble up good things, uh, we we and we never give a second thought to the source of them, where they came from. We might call that greed. We might call it entitlement. Um, then we're failing to properly thank God. That that seems fairly obvious. We need to express and, and recognize who is giving us good things. But there's another way we can fail to be thankful, uh, and that is we can reject the gift altogether. Uh, we've kind of all been there, both on the giving and the receiving end. Uh, did you like the gift I gave you? Yeah. Well, why aren't you using it? Uh, sometimes the best way to communicate gratitude is the simple joy of receiving and enjoying the good. There are some who would establish a rejection of the good as a religious principle in order to cultivate fellowship with God, which is completely upside down from the Bible's understanding of the good and gratitude. So the first point that I want to make this morning is that asceticism, which I'll define in a minute, asceticism kills gratitude. And Paul opens chapter 4 here with a word um, from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Spirit-inspired prophecy. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I believe the apostles were quite clearly 
of the understanding that the time between Christ's ascension and his second coming coming is the latter days, is the last days. They were in the last days. We're in the last days. He says, in that time, people will depart from the faith. And um, there's no question that the, the Old Testament uh, prophesies that. The, the New, New Testament prophesies that. Uh, for example, we just saw as we went through First John that John applies the prophecy of Daniel about the coming opponent of Christ and his people to his situation with the spirit of the Antichrist um, and that people will depart and leave true doctrine for false doctrine. And we also saw during that, that study that Jesus himself said that, that false prophets would come and deceive people. But the word here he uses, he says, the Spirit expressly says, or, or we might say, he says in so many words, suggests that, that perhaps this is actually either a direct prophecy that Paul received from the Holy Spirit about the departure of the saints, or that maybe it was a prophecy that had been circulated through the church. Whatever the case, the source is uh, the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us, or the Spirit tells us, how it is people will leave the faith. He says, by devoting themselves, following, going after deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And he also says how these teachings of demons are dispensed, and that is through the insincerity of liars, of false teachers, uh, whose consciences are seared. Um, so to summarize, men who are dishonest, who are desensitized or cauterized to the word of the law and to the, to the power of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit, are employed by the forces of evil to propagate doctrines. He calls them doctrines of demons. And these doctrines will whisk some people away into apostasy, into unbelief. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. Now, Paul's language here grabs the attention. It grabs my attention. Deceitful spirits. Doctrines of demons. Now, that sounds sinister. I mean, if Paul did not give us examples of what the, the false teachers were saying here, what would you guess? He's talking about like voodoo dolls and Ouija boards, uh, witches, seances, pride parades, genocide. Yes, those are all doctrines of demons, to be sure. But how sinister are the subtler doctrines of demons? The, the examples Paul gives here are, are two. They forbid marriage and they require abstinence from certain foods. Doctrines of demons. And these are examples. These are not the only two things that qualify in this, this region of evil that Paul is talking about. These are examples. And these teachers in this time and place, they're demanding or compelling people to, to, to a form of asceticism. They require celibacy and abstinence from certain kinds of foods. They, they, again, these two things represent what I would call asceticism. An ascetic is someone who practices asceticism. He denies himself the creature comforts of life in order to stop the indulgence of the flesh and promote communion with God. 
He's 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 the guy in in the cave in in the desert. Uh, of course, there's some truth in every false teaching. We might engage in fasting for this very purpose, to deny the creature comforts of life in order to promote and cultivate fellowship with God. We also recognize that suffering often brings us closer to God. And of course, we recognize that self-denial uh, and self-discipline are essential elements of the Christian life. But uh, asceticism, it takes these truths too far to the point where it starts calling what is good evil. So if you if you turn to Colossians, uh, Colossians two, you can follow along. Paul here condemns uh, asceticism in a more direct way, and I think it's helpful. And he especially he demonstrates how Christ and his victory over the forces of evil, the demons at the cross, free us from the demands of the ascetics. So uh, Colossians two. 13 through 23 is what we'll read. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Here their demonic evil forces, the ruler have the, the, the evil uh, authorities in the heavenly places. Um, so he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or whether with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he's saying these external ascetic things where you punish your body is ultimately of no value in actually stopping the indulgence of your flesh. Now, ascetics will call us to, to lay aside things like food and drink and marriage and intimacy and clothing and housing and warmth and, and speaking and social interaction. The, the classic ascetic is the guy who moves out into the desert, lives as a hermit, deprives himself of all comforts. Um, and, and I don't want to say this is always all bad, but John the Baptist kind of lived an ascetic sort of lifestyle, but when teachers begin to demand these things as normative and necessary for the Christian life, that, that becomes very dangerous, very fast. Now, our day is not without its own ascetics. Um, there are even some Christian teachers who flirt with these things 
I think out of a righteous desire to to fight against uh, materialism and consumerism. And while we are more than sympathetic to the desire to fight those evils, uh, we must be careful never to fall into that trap of calling what is good evil. And more importantly, we must be more careful never to connect our standing with God with mere external religious rites. We also have to be wise with this topic because we are, as Christians, at liberty to abstain from many good things for many reasons. There may be medical reasons to abstain from certain foods. Um, There may be issues of taste even. I believe God made asparagus good. But unless you're my child, I'm not going to force asparagus on you. Also, Paul makes plain elsewhere that there are some among us with weak consciences who may feel uncomfortable with certain uh, foods or other liberties. And Paul urges and even commands us to be patient with those people and and to have deference toward them as they work through those things in in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. But that's not what's going on here in this passage that, that Paul is dealing with. Um, Here, there are false teachers in the church forbidding what God has called good. And Paul says that 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 is the guano from the bats that are flying from the pit of hell. That's a a doctrine of demons. So, asceticism kills gratitude. Um, But, reception of the gift expresses thanks. Reception expresses thanks. That's the second point. So in opposition to to rejection and asceticism, Paul describes the goodness of divine blessings. He says that God created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So this description here, he created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It has three parts. First is that God created them. God created the foods. He created the blessings. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. He made it. He created it. And by extension, everything that He creates is by nature good. Uh, That's what He says here in verse 4. For everything created by God is good. That's what he said in himself in Genesis 1. He saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God has never created an evil thing. Evil is not a a thing, an ontological thing. Evil is the, the, the absence or the perversion of that which is good. Uh, we we are experts at this. We pervert food by overindulgence, alcohol by drunkenness, sex by all manner of excesses, diversions, perversions, clothing by immodesty, housing and shelter by idolatry. We are very good at per- perverting 
that which is good. But, Paul affirms, God created everything, and everything that he creates is good. The second element of his description here is that he created it with a purpose. The purpose is to be received with thanksgiving. God created it to be received with thanksgiving. Notice the contrast in the text between received and rejected. God created them to be received. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I hope we can start to see the poison of the doctrine of asceticism. Rejecting the good uh, that God has provided in the name of greater communion with God is like rejecting a kiss from your husband or wife in the name of of greater fellowship with them. It just doesn't make sense. Richard Pratt says that scripture teaching or teaches that thanksgiving in prayer is to be a deep appreciation for what God has done for us. A deep appreciation. Uh, we can, I think, very often offer thanks to God as, as a compulsory habit. Thank, thank you. Uh, I do that all the time. Thank you for this day. What, what do I mean by that? But our most thankful moments may not even be accompanied by words of thanks at all, but in the simple receiving and enjoying of the gift. It's the simple enjoyment of the goodness of the thing that has been given to us by our Creator and indeed by our Father. And He does give them to us uniquely as His children. The the third element of this principle that Paul is explaining here is that He created them to be... uh, Enjoyed and, and for thanksgiving by a specific group of people, he says, by believers who know the truth. Those who believe and know the truth, which to me is a bit odd initially, because don't unbelievers also enjoy the good things in life? Part of the goodness of creation was the goodness of man. It was, it was a goodness that was distorted by our own idolatry. He, he created all those things that we might enjoy them with Him while we walked in the garden in the cool of the day. So unbelief doesn't remove the blessing or the enjoyment of the blessing from the equation. It, it removes fellowship with the proper object of our gratitude from the equation. Now God does deserve thanksgiving from all men. Uh, but not all men offer it. We see that in Romans 20, I mean 1, 20 and 21. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the nature of unbelief, is we we take the gift and we refuse to give gratitude to the giver. So all men do enjoy the gifts of God in common grace, but we can't truly enjoy them as they were intended while walking in unbelief, uh, attributing their source to false gods 
or to ourselves or to, to random chance. Um, but believers who know the truth, we, we appreciate the gifts of God um, as his covenant children. Matthew Henry ex- uh, explains it this way. He says, God in making those things had a special regard to those who believe and know the truth, who have a covenant right to the creation, whereas others only have a common right. So as God's children, we have a covenant right to, to the blessings of God that unbelievers do not have. So these designs of God in creation speak to the, the kindness and love of our Heavenly Father. He created everything and it was good and he did so, Paul says, so that we might receive it and be thankful to him. To glorify him. He he did it so that we might be drawn out in in a sense of profound appreciation for who he is and what he's done. And he's done it not in a, a compulsory way where we're sort of programmed Thanksgiving robots. But he did it by giving us gifts that are really an extension and an expression of his very essence and character. Good. He gave us good because he is good. So God means for the good in this world to point us ultimately to him. And that's why um, just in two chapters from the one we're in here, Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. We don't hope in riches, but on God. But then he adds this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So this goodness, goodness unto appreciation is built in by God into the creational design. So part of enjoying God Glorifying him is simply uh, receiving that which he's given us and finding joy in the goodness of his gifts. He created everything to be received with thanksgiving. I think I've shared this before, but it's a powerful illustration to me of this principle. Um, a, A lady once asked me, how can I glorify God in my knitting? She enjoyed yarn crafts and and uh, I think she was feeling like that this might be frivolous a little bit, um, that, that her time might be better spent maybe in reading and prayer and service. And certainly we can go too far when the good supplants the best, when the things we enjoy overtake life and begin to interfere with, with important things like worship, uh, private and corporate and, and service. But we as Christians, we can kind of get that way, where unless... It's pure devotion, pure piety, pure self-sacrifice. Then it's a frivolous waste of time. You kind of almost have that that pressure, a little bit of a voice of guilt in the back of your mind. Like, shouldn't I be doing something better with my time? The, The lady was amazed when I told her, glorify God in your knitting by enjoying knitting. If I give my kid a truck for Christmas, the best way he can express his appreciation is the fruit of lips, but not with the words thank you, but by... Right? 
Or Levi got a bunch of trains. His birthday was yesterday. I want to hear the choo-choos in the, in the other room. I know he's thankful. and he, he enjoys the gift. So Paul's telling us here, they forbid marriage and certain kinds of food. No, God made all things good that we might enjoy them and be thankful to him. So instead, Proverbs says, Proverbs 5, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Ecclesiastes 9, 7-9 Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in, all, in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So gratitude is, is expressed by the very reception and enjoyment of the good thing. The, the trick in discussing this topic is there's always a bunch of qualifiers that come to mind and they're important. And the reason is, the reason there are qualifiers, and this is really true anytime we talk about creation ordinances and principles, is that we now live in a fallen world. We have to account for that, a world that corrupts the goodness of creation so the, that leads us to, to our third point, is we need to be grateful in Christ. In Christ. Because only in Christ can we find any restoration of the original goodness of the creation design. Paul here has his own qualification to make in verse 4. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Then he explains in verse 5 why he adds this qualification. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So already the word of God has consecrated, made holy, really everything that he's made as good, um, once for all time when he said, it is very good. Also, Matthew Henry points this out, that God's word also gives us permission to partake in that which is good. Uh, for example, in Genesis 9:3, after they come off of the ark, Noah and his family, God says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, as I gave you in the green plants, I give you everything. And then, of course, Acts 10, when Peter sees the sheep full of all these animals coming down from the the sky, and he says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And God says, what I have made clean, do not call common. Do not call evil what I've called good. So when we reach out in, in prayers of thanks, then, we in a sense affirm what God has said about that thing. We, we lay hold of that which is ours for ourselves. Uh, and we recognize the source and goodness of that thing. Um, just as Peter, by entering the house of Cornelius, 
affirmed what God told him about the consecration of the previously unclean. And Peter just says, okay, but never acts out on what God had told him, then he's not actually affirming what God has said. So the uneasy conscience may may be alleviated or it may be confirmed through the practice of prayers of thanksgiving. As a general rule, we should not do anything we cannot thank God for. Because as James says, every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights. We shouldn't do anything that we can't thank God for. I think back to, to the fall, um, Genesis 1.29, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then in chapter 2.15-17, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gave them good things, abundance of good things in the garden to eat, to partake of. And i got to think that Adam and Eve thoroughly enjoyed garden life. No doubt expressing thanks verbally to God, but also just through the mere enjoyment of the blessings. But I kind of want to ask them when we, when we get to heaven, I, I believe, they were redeemed. We get to heaven. Did you thank God for that piece of fruit on that day? I bet the answer is no. This is why things that were made good by God need to be made holy by word and prayer. They were already made good. Why, why sanctify them? Well, we live in a world where perversion and corruption and unbelief pervades everything. And while common grace causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, um, Paul says in, in Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So in our fall we lost communion with God and are under His wrath and curse. And in that condition we are not in a position, naturally, before our redemption, to rightly offer thanksgiving to God. Because we're not in fellowship with Him. Colossians 1 says that in our fallen state we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Thus, before we can ever sanctify our blessings through prayer of thanksgiving, we must first be made holy, sanctified, set apart unto God ourselves. Notice how Paul um, sees the sanctifying grace of God uh, setting the, the Corinthian people apart in this passage here unto good gifts. He, he sets them apart, sanctifies them to good gifts. In 1 Corinthians 1, 4-8, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So really, truly, we can only rightly offer thanksgiving to God in Christ. We're not in a position otherwise to do that. What, what was lost in Adam, our covenantal right to the blessings of God, is only restored in Christ. Calvin here says, Common sense indeed pronounces that the wealth of the world is naturally intended for our use. But since dominion over the world was taken from us in Adam, everything that we touch of the gifts of God is defiled by our pollution and on the other hand is unclean to us till God graciously came to our aid and by engrafting us into his Son constitutes anew to be lords of the world that we may lawfully use as our own all the wealth which he supplies us. In Christ, that that covenantal creational order is restored even as we are slowly sanctified through this life. But it's only because we are engrafted into the Son that we are able rightly to appreciate the good gifts of God and employ them as intended. So to me, it's, it's no surprise that you know our chapter breaks were not original. So it's no surprise that our passage here comes on the heels of one of the greatest confessions about our Lord Jesus Christ that's in the Scripture. This is an, an, an exclamation of the glory of Christ that, that Christ himself is godliness personified. If we back up to 3.16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So it's through him then, through him, let us, let us offer up the fruit of lips, the, the offering of thanks. And in him, even, even more, even today as we feast yet again, for many of us maybe the fourth, fifth time this week, let's enjoy whatever goodness, great or small, has been given to us, setting our hopes, not on those things ultimately, but on God who, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Amen.